This episode of Equity is presented by MetaLab. MetaLab designs and builds products for companies that are expecting massive growth. Slack, YouTube, and Uber are just a few of the startups that hired MetaLab on their way to becoming household names. They're the product agency that helped design the original version of Slack and the YouTube player that is still in use today. Last year, MetaLab collaborated with the founding teams at Neuralink and Pitch. Unlike a lot of other agencies, MetaLab doesn't claim to be full service. They do one thing and they do it really well, and that's digital products. If you're ready to build a product for millions of people, then visit metalab.com. Tell them TechCrunch Equity sent you. Hey, everybody, stick around after the show. We have TechCrunch's Jordan Crook here to tell us all about the upcoming early stage event for founders, and I think she has a discount code, so we'll see you there. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined by two of the finest humans on the face of the planet, one of whom, of course, is Natasha Mascarenas. Natasha, how are you and how is life? Life is good. I always dance to when you say the numbers behind the headlines. And I wish our listeners could do that with me. So if you're listening, please do that with me. Little do people know how I think that's the thing I wrote down once on a script doc and has just been copy pasted into every script doc since. So it's not really intentional. And we only do that half the time anyways. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Danny, you're here too. Hey. I also do a dance. And for some reason, once I started dancing, uh, we stopped doing video. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very different long story. Listen, <laughs> if we do sound a little bit tired, it's because it has been an enormous week yet again of tech news. So what we have done is gone through all the stuff that we wrote about, all the stuff that seemed to really matter. And we have culled and cut and scraped and trimmed. And now we have just the core stuff that you have to know. So we are going to talk about Dispo up front. We're going to talk about Robinhood's IPO, the major Discord acquisition rumor, Altimeter putting more money into a company that we've talked about a little bit too much on the show, but can't really help ourselves. A couple of funding rounds from Bevy and Row, and then we're going to wrap with four all-time faves from the last YC demo day. Cool. So Natasha, we're going to start with Dispo, and you owned the story for TechCrunch. Thank you for all your reporting. Talk us through the saga. Yeah. So, I mean, just off the top, if talking about assault or hearing about assault is a hard topic for you. Just feel free to skip over a few minutes. Totally understand. Just wanted to give a small trigger warning. But what happened this past week and why it's making its way into equity is that Business Insider wrote a piece about David Dobrik, a popular YouTuber, and it exposed allegations from a woman who said that a member of Dobrik's vlog squad, which is the team he records YouTube videos with sometimes, a member of that team sexually assaulted her. And the reason, like I said, it's making its way into equity is that Dobrik is the co-creator of Dispo, a photo sharing app that's gotten a lot of buzz, was invite only and recently left beta. In the beginning, when the story went out, a lot of people looked at it as an influencer story. When we see Dobrik's overall tentacles in tech, in business, he has been one of the most loved people on YouTube and has started so many businesses. He gets a lot of clout for being successful at starting lucrative businesses. So Dispo was that next project for him. We saw a ton of venture capital firms, the earliest investors, one that even led around weeks earlier, sever ties or distance itself from the startup. The three firms are Spark Capital, 776, and Unshackled. The latter two have decided to stay with the company in some way, but donate any of the profits they could ever get from Dispo to organizations working with survivors of sexual assault. It's a material round. I mean, we're talking about a $20 million Series A at a $200 million valuation. This wasn't a couple of bucks into a pre-seed company. This was, I mean, legitimately a lot. So this is a big darn deal for their cap tables and LPs, and it's a mess. Danny, I don't think there's any precedent for this sort of thing. 
No, I mean, this influencer-driven startup model is so new. I think we're going to see it a lot more going forward as you have personalities have such a marquee role for a lot of these startups. But the challenge for a lot of VC firms, it's very hard to unwind an early stage investment. The only way you can kind of do that is everyone around the cap table sort of has to agree legally to actually allow you to extricate yourself. And who's going to agree? If you're the founder, you're not going to agree to just lose your money. The other investors don't want to lose the money. You may want your money back. You'd have to sue. But then you also sign a contract saying you'd give this money in exchange for equity. So it's very, very, very hard legally to unwind an investment. And that's why you're seeing different approaches, right? So Spark is getting off the board. They still have that board seat, as far as I know. Like legally, they have a reserved board seat. Now, they may not take that seat. They may be off the board. That doesn't mean they don't have the right, as far as I know, to not go back on the board at some point yeah. in the future. 776 and Unshackled have taken the approach of, you know, we're going to have this investment regardless of what we're going to do. Let's donate the profits from it long term. That's another approach. And that to me is like kind of accepting the reality of this. The only other one that comes to mind, and it wasn't this kind of influencer scandal, was Phoenix with Sequoia having this issue with a competitive dynamic with Stripe. And in that case, they just sort of handed the money over. I'm still not exactly clear. Again, there's such legal complexity there. That still doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like, you, I guess you can just give up your equity and pretend it doesn't exist. That is sort of an option. It doesn't seem like that wasn't what either of these three firms chose to do. Okay, so the thing here seems to be a lack of diligence into this founder. And Danny, if you're saying that we're going to see a lot more I don't know. I think we've all seen more influencers attached to venture capital rounds. It seems like every single round that comes up now is like, and the chain smokers are in this, or like, you know, this YouTuber's in this, or like Joe Montana's grandson, he plays on Twitch, is in this round. This seems to be a very common thing, but it just seems to also be an enormous liability unless you vet these people much more so than it appears that they haven't vetted thus far. We hear the line so many times, and it's kind of fun, usually. It's the deals are so hot. We're just getting emails being like, do you want to just enter my round? And I think this was a reminder and potentially a moment of realization for a lot of VCs that due diligence cannot be an afterthought, even with a competitive environment. I mean, Spark Capital reportedly lost out on Clubhouse. They got a really flashy deal with Dispo. I don't think they did a great job checking Dobrik's background because there's a ton of stuff out there showing Dobrik's potential. I mean, it, it was all there, right? Like they didn't have to find a video. The video was there. You know, we're, we're at an extremely accelerated time for VC investing. I had a VC call me late last night, which is one reason I'm so tired this morning, but who was just apocalyptic about a founder who had reached out and was like, you have 60 minutes to write a check for this Series A or you will not be considered for the round. That's like the new approach. And supposedly that person had like 20 or 25 term sheets around the table or wow. something like that. It's like that. the dark side of FOMO. It's like FOMO for VCs, but it's like it's like the accelerated, like Green you just Floyd. take it and you're like, like F you. And so, you know, you still have this 30 day window, right? Like, I don't think VCs have negotiated away their like due diligence windows. But, you know, if you don't close, then you become known as the VC who doesn't close on a round. Right. And a popular round like Dispo, it's going to get around the valley very, very quickly. And other VCs are going to mention it, right? If Spark said did the 30 day window, did due diligence. They said, whoa, there's this video that's really scary. We don't, you know, we don't want to follow through. We're not going to wire. Every competitor Spark is going to go in the future round and go, guess what? Did you hear what happened to Dispo? Like Spark, they gave a term sheet. They didn't wire the money. Don't let that happen to you. You don't want to choose their money. Choose our money. It's way more reliable. We're always going to wire our money. You know, it's a collective action problem, right? It's a tragedy of the commons. Everyone wants yeah. good due diligence. Obviously, VCs don't want to invest in fraud. They don't want to invest in scandals. They don't want to invest in any of these sorts of problems. But when you're accelerating so quickly, outsourcing so much of the due diligence, founders are giving you like literally deadlines and like guns to heads to invest. There's no real way out of that system when there are hundreds of investors willing to write checks. Totally. I think at the end of the day, this could set a new precedent for what VCs can do when a founder finds itself within a controversy. And that is definitely a needed warning sign for founders. 
But yeah, I think we're going to have to keep seeing it play out. Notably, Danny, as you mentioned, like this is a lot more complicated than severing all ties and leaving money on the table. Money is involved. Documents are involved and returns potentially are involved in some way. I mean, Spark still won't tell me where they're going to put the profits. So we don't know what's going to happen. Definitely a big story to keep following. And the answer is they probably don't know because they don't have a playbook to handle this. I think we will have a playbook more and more for a lot of VC firms. And frankly, I think for a lot of VCs, it's just the cost of doing business. You're just going to assume I've had VCs. I mean, this is truly off record and we never really report, but VCs will literally tell me they're like, look, we know that 10% of our companies will be outright frauds. Is that now, Danny? Is that 10% a now stat? That's more than yes. al- Always. Okay. Yes, that's now. Because that, that seems high for like 2010. You're going to miss out on the best deals if you do that kind of due diligence to try to prevent your downside on four companies. So what I've heard from a lot of folks is like, look, just accept that four out of your 40 companies in the portfolio are just going to be complete frauds and just yeah, hope yeah. that they're not like extremely public frauds that make you look very, very stupid. All right. But yeah. like reality is, is like you're already losing money on most of your deals anyway. If a couple of them happen to be frauds, you might as well just try to get into the best companies and not worry about it. We're supposed to be talking about something else by now, but this is, I think, one of the more important kind of meta topics in Silicon Valley right now, the pace of investment, the decline of diligence, and essentially the muscle flexing of founders to kind of, frankly, demand VCs to jump to when they want them to. I think it was Sheil, the, uh, the fintech VC the other day was talking about some YC stuff. And someone had sent one of his friends an email that was like, hi, you know, if you want to get in this round, click here. And if you like forego diligence, you can get in. And it was like a hundred million dollar valuation for a YC company. And he was like, so I can just give you money without doing diligence or I miss out at a hundred. It was just like, things are so crazy. I mean, Siri from Draper was basically like, it's become founder unfriendly to ask questions, to do due diligence. Asking questions is definitely founder unfriendly. And that's wild. That's why people hate journalists. You, you invest first and ask questions later. <laughs> this is going to keep happening. And I, I think for a lot of VCs, they're accepting that, look, valuations are higher and a percentage of the portfolio is going to be fraudulent. I don't know if they could literally tell an LP, 10% of our companies are going to be complete fraud. Sorry. But that's just the nature of the business. And I think they just accept it. That is essentially our early stage 2021 summary. The late stage has an entirely <laughs> different set of problems, including one of the companies we need to get to next, which is Robinhood, which has been sued by a great number of folks. News out this week is that they have filed confidentially to go public. And what that means is they filed an S1 with the SEC. It is just currently under lock and key, and therefore we cannot dig through it, though we are very excited, I think, as a three to read through the numbers. Robinhood is one step closer to Danny to going public well under a barrage of lawsuits. I think we're weighing here the company wanting to go public on the back of a very strong Q4, Q1 cycle versus getting through all these lawsuits before its IPO. And so they came down on the sooner side of things. I'm curious what your first thoughts were when you read this news. I mean, I read a lot of S1s. Look, it's not uncommon for folks who go public to have lawsuits outstanding, right? Some of the food delivery companies have huge lawsuits. Yep. Deliveroo in London right now has a huge fight. They're going through this process as well. Two investors just this Thursday, as we're recording, announced that they would not invest over workers' rights concerns. You know, the reality is an IPO similar to a marriage, shouldn't be a massive moment that is like the highlight of the entire company's existence or your entire relationship's existence. It should be like, not maybe like the low point, but it should just be a point on a line that continues to- You mean the wedding- the wedding, not yeah. the marriage itself. Yeah, not the marriage. marriage. <laughs> I was like, this is how Danny feels about marriage. Yeah, yeah the I'm wedding. Just, I'm helping yeah. you out because, you, you, yeah, I got you back. <laughs> as, a, as you're also married, and Che might hear this, and I don't just get <laughs> <Yeah. that. laughs> That's why we keep the door closed. But uh, you know, the, the key here is to me, it's just an IPO. It's a funding event. They've had other funding events. It's not that different. They're going to have lawsuits. They're going to have a bunch of contention. Look, Vlad is in front of the House Finance Committee a couple of weeks ago. It's just going to be an ongoing part of their business. I think the business is very strong. Makes total yes. sense to IPO now. They need yes. money. Yes. What are you going to do? Go public. 
I, I will say though, the the meme of him saying that's a great question, Congressperson, was so funny because like every time they'd be like, Robin Hood eats babies, and he'd be like, that's a great question, Congressperson. <laughs> so in our opinion, and like because he like he had this obvious script that he was you know taught to do by his I hope well funded cops team who've had to go through hell in the last six months. But that made me laugh. I'm excited about this, Natasha. Do you think they're gonna let Robin Hood investors get in early to the Robin Hood <laughs> stock, or are they gonna short it? Like like there's certainly gonna be some sort of recursive hilarity going on once I, I we get this company. That's why I'm like the most excited for its IPO is like there's so many meta bits like are someone going to short Robinhood on Robinhood? It's I think a beautiful story. Like we're just going to have so much fun with it. I think we should do a Wednesday episode about it if I'm being honest. Oh my gosh. I'm going to relearn all the terms for options trading so we can say like, are, is anyone buying puts on Robinhood or whatever? The, uh, I don't get options. I'm not going to lie. I was just kind of nodding my head. But it is not the only company that starts with a kind of a $10 billion plus valuation that is making a lot of noise this week. This is a new story that I don't understand, Natasha, but apparently Discord and Microsoft might be a thing, which is a strange union. But what's the uh, what's the word there? My take on it is even an enterprise giant is getting interested in community. We finally are seeing Microsoft, of all companies, make a large $10 billion bet. I know you're going to be mad at me in two seconds on Discord. I mean, the talks are still being had, so it could fall apart. But that would be such a cool mix up. Okay, so look, I don't want to defend Microsoft because f them, they're rich. No, they're a beast. Yeah, they're, they're worth $1.78 trillion. They do not More need me. me to come jumping in front of the bullet. But I disagree with the, them getting into community because they built the Xbox platform into kind of a, a long-term juggernaut. And that is a community of gamers with the, the Xbox, well, on PS4, it's called the Game Pass, whatever the hell it is. But like, you know, there's social elements to that. And also they bought Minecraft and didn't screw it up. And that's a community of gamers. And also they bought GitHub, which is essentially developer town square and didn't screw that up. Now they have screwed up Skype and the danger of purchase didn't go very well. And the Windows phone stuff didn't work out. So I'm not saying everything they take shots at in the consumer-ish space works, but you know, I can almost see this. Danny, 10 billion, though, seems a little cheap for the company. There's a couple of things here. One is I think when you see Slack selling to Salesforce, and you also have Discord potentially, potentially looking at selling to Microsoft. You know, one of the big questions is, is, can you build community chat platforms that are independent? Can you IPO these companies? You know, Slack, obviously, I well, didn't IPO it, it direct listed, but nonetheless, it was publicly traded. But, you know, it didn't really make it, right? Because Microsoft Teams took more and more of that market share and seemed to have just more integration with the kinds of tools people already had in the enterprise. When I look at Discord, I think it goes down the same route. You know, can they actually make enough money? Does the economics work? The price, unfortunately for them, is antitrust adjusted, right? Because the two biggest buyers you could imagine, Google, Facebook, who would actually put out maybe more than 10 billion or 15 billion or 20 billion are out. It will not pass antitrust review. So your two largest competing offers that you would get to drive the price higher are just on the market. You know, who's Microsoft really competing against? Twitter? Twitter doesn't have money for 10 billion to buy Discord, you know, and foreign companies are also hugely sensitive. So yeah, you can't imagine like Alibaba not. or Tencent doing this. So like, what's left? Amazon? Amazon's not going to do this. So, you know, it's like Oracle. <laughs> oh my <laughs> God, Danny, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> do not. As a Discord user, I do not want Larry Ellison. <laughs> do you guys ever hear the joke about Oracle? No, what's the joke? Oracle is an animal that eats money and shits pain. I don't know if we can keep that in the show, but it's, it's the most accurate thing. My favorite line is the, the biography on Larry Ellison, which is the book title is the difference between Larry Ellison and God is that God does not believe he's Larry Ellison. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, my yeah. God. <laughs> Oracle jokes never go out of fashion, by the way. If you live and work in the San Francisco <laughs> Bay Area, there's a lot of like Oracle Towers down the one I went towards the airport or whatever. Even their buildings look evil. Like it's it's hilariously <laughs> on brand. Like if there was like lightning bolts coming out from the sky to shock cars as they drove past them, I would not be surprised. And I bet you'd have to pay to be shocked. 
Listen, so the reason why I said that Discord might be cheap at 10 billion is that the revenue over there is growing pretty quick. So from 45 million in 2019 per the Wall Street Journal up to about 130 million in 2020, you can pretty easily see it going to 200 this year. It's a 50x multiple at that point trailing. So it looks a little cheap compared to modern multiples at that pace. But Danny's right. We don't know what's going to happen with uh, who can bid. This all feels really nostalgic when we think about Plaid, which we can talk about next. Yes. Plaid was going to go through a, I believe, 5.3 billion acquisition by Visa. People were thinking it's cheap. Ends up falling apart because of regulatory concerns. And now in a story broke by the information this past week, it is raising a $600 million funding round that could value it at between 10 billion to 15 billion. Wow. That is so much money. I mean, guys, I mean, it's uh, I know Stripe has kind of made us a little bit shell shocked when it comes to enormous rounds, but six hundred million dollars is like four IPOs in one <laughs> private round. Like it's like it's a it's an amount of money that we should have put at the top of the show because it was so shocking to us that a private company raised us. Instead, we kind of buried it like story five because, oh, it plaid that it's fintech, not a huge shocker. My God, it's a lot of freaking money. I mean, 15 billion is legit valuation because the company only had about 100 mil in 2019 revenue. And so, you know, let's say they got to like 150, 175, 200 last year. That's a pretty big multiple to grow into. That's not cheap. It feels like vindication for all the VCs that were like, we actually never wanted Plaid to be acquired by Visa because they're worth so much more. It feels like I'm really happy for them. <laughs> I didn't want to date her anyways. Nah. <laughs> exactly. I think, you know, the, the big question is long-term Plaid's viability. You know, one of the reasons I think the Visa tie-up made a lot of sense is the leverage it offered over the banks who ultimately can shut Plaid off from their data, right? And there is a lot of sensitivity in the banking circles about the fact that Plaid basically hoovers up all the data out of their databases. They have all this transaction data. They can do all this stuff with it. And the banks are essentially like, the database company now they're no longer the customer company and banks don't like that and so visa was like this power play of like okay now we have visa on our side and you can go back to the banks and be like look it's plaid and visa and you have to negotiate with this whole entity you have a lot more market leverage plaid independently is a tricky place to be they just signed up 1400 customers last year 4000 total i'm not saying they're not having a lot of success they're raising more money they have more revenues but at the end of the day they are built on top of pulling information from other places and those places don't want to give them that information increasingly year after year after year. Yeah, yeah. And that's just, to me, a very dangerous place to be. I wonder, though, because they feel so ubiquitous now that you can't really rip them out. They're kind of overly plumbed into the system. And like if a bank decides to not play with Plaid, they're cutting their own users off from so much stuff that I bet the user revolt would de-risk that. But one more point about the leverage thing. That's a really good point, Danny. It reminds me of Slack. You know, Slack can now sell into this enormous Salesforce sales channel in a, in a way they couldn't before they had a bigger company as their parent. And, you know, I bet Plaid probably would have had some more leverage that would have helped them accelerate customer acquisition inside of the Visa family. Right. And, you know, look, is there a Microsoft Teams equivalent against Plaid? No, there really isn't. But the banks have done stuff like this before. So Zelle, which I imagine most of us, if you have a bank account today, you can move money from place to place with Zelle, was sort of a competitor to Venmo and some of the other cash-to-cash -cash transaction options. You know, all the major banks now have their own pipes and infrastructure using Zelle. And to me, like, you could imagine the banks coming together and saying, let's create an open infrastructure for data interchange and just cut Plaid out. And we're all going to agree at the same time to do this. And we'll only use that and not Plaid. That to me, and if it's open, by the way, there's no money there anymore. You know, you get around antitrust, you can make it open standards. Plaid theoretically could still be the API company, but like now you have a huge question of competition and everything else. So I, I just think it's a very, whenever you don't own the data, they don't own the whole stack. Right. They're not right, Robinhood. Right. They don't own your cash. You don't own the portfolio. You don't own the customer. 
that to me is just an open question of the company long term. Really quickly, when he said Zell, Natasha, you did a little dance. <laughs> I, I thought I thought Zell was for boomers. Zell is great because the money for rent goes directly into your bank account without waiting. While Venmo oh. does, and there's like less limits. So I use it for rent between roommates. Okay. It basically goes around ACH. So so Zell is like its own payments gateway. The, That's really the, the cool. major banks most are on top of it. Oh. All right. <laughs> Look All at right. us. Always here to learn. But listen, we need to go on to the second bit of this plot story, which is that they have dropped the names of their inaugural cohort of fintech startups. And they picked, uh, I think, five from a pool of 100. Yes. <laughs> it's called FinRise. It was created by a group of employees at Plaid. So huge kudos to them for just like having the energy and like wanting to do so. It's an equity free and capital free program. So no company is getting money through it. Maybe one day. They have a bunch of capital partners, but the accelerator is focused on helping fintech startups created by underrepresented founders. And it's honestly been some of the coolest fintech plays I've seen in a minute. They really struck out to me, honestly, more than any YC fintech company did. And I won't give it away, but like I'll just I'll list a little bit of what they're focusing on. One's like focusing on connecting communities of color to culturally savvy financial advisors. Think about like collectivism and even like the Indian culture. I think that's really key. There's one other one called Of Color that's a go-to enterprise wellness platform for employees of color. And Zeta is here. We talked about Zeta. This is the, the, the couple's bank thing as part of this. Yeah, we talked about it a few episodes ago. It was, yeah, it, exactly what Alex said. So they're making the modern couple figure out joint banking better. So they're one to watch. It was one of the few accelerators that I'm like every company. I was like, all right, I will like this. And it's crazy how five companies is enough to get attention, not 350 companies. Well, if you're attached <laughs> to Plaid... One company would get attention. You know what I mean? Like, like they're, they're all cheating, but that's probably why it's an accelerator because you detach yourself to that big brand name. But listen, let's talk about some other funding rounds, not just the biggest companies. We have Bevy. They put together a $40 million series seed, Natasha, but that's not really the cool part of the story. Yeah. As part of that round, 20% of the investment was from 25 Black investors. Only 3% of VCs are Black and 81% of VC firms, based on a couple of studies, don't have a Black investor. So to give them that kind of positioning, again, not as charity, but as a opportunity to share in potential returns one day, I think is super compelling. And I mean, not to mention Phoenix again, but we saw Phoenix just do this. They allocated about 10% of their round to Black and Latinx investors. It's a really interesting new thing that's happening. We have a little fact here in our notes that says that last May when George Floyd was killed, which kicked off an enormous round of Black Lives Matter protests around, around the nation, uh, around the world, actually, Bevy didn't have a single person of color among its employees and didn't have a single Black investor on its cap table. And so that's not great, but it's great to see a company not just put out platitudes and not do anything, but instead make actual room in its cap table, diversify its investors and equitably spread around the potential upside of the deal. You know, it's a $40 million Series C. That's not a small amount of money. 20% of that, Danny, is what, 8 mil? Mm -hmm. Yep, I can do math. Yeah, like do that instead of like give mentorship opportunities, I think. Yeah, like we're going to talk to some historically black colleges. Great. Or you could just put your freaking money where your mouth is and do the right thing. I'm excited about this. Of course, you know, Bevy and Phoenix, two companies, two data points. We get one more data point. We have a trend. Actually, so if you're going to do this, equitypod at techcrunch.com. We'd love to hear from you, frankly. Now we're going to move on to Roe, which has raised a bunch more money. Danny, you're going to walk us through this. Roe has raised $500 million in a Series D round. If you remember when it was just Roman, it focused on erectile dysfunction drugs, and specifically a single drug that came out of patent. It was a generic, and they popularized sort of a direct-to-consumer health model that we haven't really seen much. It became popular. Obviously, a lot of competitors came in, Hims and others. And then Roe has, over the years, just continually expanded its offering. So now it's in the pharmacy business. It offers 500 drugs at $5 a month. It actually has 10 different pharmacies in which they do direct-to-consumer mail. 
so you can get your drugs and other pharma products super fast. And they're also doing more around telehealth and in-home primary care. So they have gone from like a very, very niche category of health and continually expanded the platform to encompass more health services, more illnesses and different diseases. Clearly, it's doing well. 500 million. I don't know if we had the valuation here. Five billion. Five billion. There you go. And it's now raised more than 800, almost 900 million over the last couple of years. Founded just four years ago, 2017. And Danny, as they expand more products, we were talking about this during the, our prep call. They, they expand their TAM, essentially. They create a bigger market for themselves to sell into. The key here is is similar to what we were just talking about with Plaid. It's a company that like owns its customer, right? So once you have this customer, it's super easy and they're already in the process. Well, why not do other drugs, right? Why not be more comprehensive? At some point, why not add fitness? Why not get into supplements? There's all kinds of things you can do. I think they've done a really good job of just expanding purely in health. But yes, they're expanding the TAM while still owning the same customer. 100%. You don't become a $5 billion valued company if you just sell ED drugs direct to consumer. The point that I think is most remarkable about Roe is that they still operate entirely out of pocket. And that is not a majority of working Americans in the United States, I believe. So they are still, if they're working out of insurance, insurance is still kind of like the biggest slice of a market you can get. It's also the harder slice to get into. So it's been cool to see Roe be able to get that and prove digital health has a huge market, even without integrating with a lot of the complicated stuff, but more accessible and widespread. And we've also seen some other health tech companies kind of focus on single solutions to single problems. So we've seen Vera Health, for example, focus on PCOS in India, which is a very common thing. And there's two ways to go about this, you know, pick a big market, pick a big need or go broad. I don't know which one's going to be best long term, but at some point, Roe will have raised all the money in the world. And so we'll get to see how that experiment kind of pans out in the end. I I do think to go to Natasha's point, the all cash model for health is the future. You know, the the insurance industry has just added so many layers of cost to a lot of health. I joked about this. I was getting an x-ray last year, like just a standard x-ray. It was like 1600 billed. And I asked like what the cash rate was. And they were like, well, you know, if it was super efficient, whatever, it'd be like $30. Yeah, that is the discrepancy we're talking about. And I was like, my copay is like 25 for an x-ray. So like for five bucks more, I have to do no paperwork. The whole world is simpler. I slide the credit card. It's done. It's actually kind of insane how close you can get a lot of these products down to the almost the copay level for a lot of treatments, a lot of medical visits. So more kudos to them. I think we're going to see a lot more in that category. But we're going to end today with a lot of exciting companies. Natasha and Alex, you watched YZ Demo Day, and I heard that there were more than 10 companies this year. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> it was a long day. I, I gave up at like two hours before the end because I was on from like noon 30 my time to like 5 30 or 6 p.m. And I'm like, that's enough. You know, that's that's my, you know, even candy gets tiring after a while. Totally. I mean, definitely virtual demo day works better than in person demo day in terms of a journalist covering it. It's so comfortable to do it while having lunch or just in your pajamas. And I'm like, never want that to change. So I won't complain about that. But what a long day, all in one day, all back to back, a few lunch breaks. So you watch hundreds of companies, I believe almost what more than 300 companies walk through. How, how many seconds do they get? They get more than five seconds to, to pitch? Like one minute. Thir- what? Is it a whole minute? Okay. I think it's a whole yeah. minute. A whole minute. <laughs> <laughs> okay, when we talk about lack good. of due diligence, let's just go back to a theme here. When we talk about lack of due diligence, at, at a certain point, you got to ask yourself, like, what are you pitching in 60 seconds? I mean, I, I understand elevator pitches, but like, pitching Stanford. You know, it's like, there's like two slides. It's like, we're here, invest, and you have an hour to do so. But Well, no, you have a little chart that goes up. You had two favorites. Both of you had two favorites. So we're going to do a little Q&A because I, I didn't follow the demo day stuff at all. So you picked two each, and I'm curious what you chose, and let's talk about them. The first one that stood out to me 
was Blush. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with the company called Dipsy. It's a startup that does like audio erotica, has had a ton of success, is like honestly a podcast sponsor for all my favorite podcasts. But we heard about a company trying to build the Dipsy for women in Asia. It's called Blush and it has a monthly subscription where women can listen to intimate and immersive audio stories in their words. And during the pitch, the founder was basically like, they want to do what Spotify and Audible did for music and audiobooks for women's sexual wellness. And the reason it struck out to me is like so much of that content is male oriented or just clearly made for like the male gaze. And to see it being done for women, period. But then women in Asia is, I think, a really awesome and genuinely risky thing to do. So it's always rings alarm bells when I see an actually risky startup doing an actually scary thing. And the name's also just really good. I know this is not super important, but Adorable. blush with two H's. I just instantly remembered it and it stuck out to me. And and Dipsy, by the way, if you want to look it up, I just did. It's D-I-P-S-E-A, not S-Y. So anyways, it's cool to see more of these come up and they all charge money, which means there is huge demand. So yeah, I think 100 customers in one month or something like that. Alex, what's the one that took your mind? I so I'm torn between two. So I'm going to split the hairs here and go really fast to two of them. One is Prospa, P-R-O-S-P-A, which is building kind of a neobank aimed at SMEs and micro companies in Nigeria. I am trying to pay more attention to the overall African tech scene, especially in Nigeria, which is a company, sorry, company. It's a country with a rapidly growing population, smartphone penetration and so forth. It's a great market to look at the overall continent's tech ecosystem through. And what I also liked about them is that they're not doing what every kind of neobank does in the States, which is live off of interchange. They are charging their customers $7 a month and I've already hit 50K in MRR. So love that. And then also just really briefly, Terra, which does kind of like, it's, oh, it's plaid for fitness data, uh, which I'm sure Danny will love because they don't own the customer either. But uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll just say that I'm an enormous dweeb and I Peloton and I run and my running app and my Peloton app don't talk. And so I love the idea of having more connected fitness data. Tosh, do you want to just give us a, a little bit on Vera Health before we go? Yes. So this is kind of the last startup that I would want to give a shout out to. PCOS is a condition that impacts one in 10 women. It's polycystic ovary syndrome. And it is a, try not to use a curse word, it's not fun to diagnose. It's really hard to figure out what symptoms fit within that. And we see Vera Health trying to build a subscription-based program that helps women screen for risks, find a good diet plan, do a ton of kind of the upkeep to make sure you're monitoring this condition just for women in India. And that to me, again, is exciting because it is going into a space that has stigma, just talking about women's health in India in general, and is touching one of the conditions that can lead to infertility. When I tweeted about it, I got a ton of DMs as well, just people being like, I haven't seen a startup ever use that word in a tagline. So you know that it's actually one of one in some ways. Yeah. And also there's like, you know, if there's like a billion people, there's 500 million women. So that's a lot of people. It's not just like one country. It's an enormous chunk of the human population that could be impacted by this. So shout out to Vera Health for doing something hard in a hard market that could be really helpful. Unlike equity, which is not useful or hard. So <laughs> we're going to end off there. This has been our show. We care about you all. We're back Monday. We have a kick-ass Wednesday show for you next week. We'll see you then. Bye. That is our show, but we are very, very lucky to have our own Jordan Crook here to tell us a little bit about our upcoming early stage event that I am incredibly excited about. So Jordan, at a high level, what is early stage and how is it different from other kind of TechCrunch events that people might know of? So unlike other TechCrunch events, we don't have a main stage at early stage. It's all breakout sessions all the time. So we have experts across fundraising, marketing, operations, essentially any question that your startup might have asked to be successful, these folks have the answer and they're going to have plenty of time for audience Q&A. 
Awesome. And uh, I'm going to be doing a session with Ryan Azis, the CRO of Zoom, all about how to build a startup sales team. I'm very, very, very excited about that. Uh, Jordan, tell us more. Who else is coming? The lineup is insane, dude. So we have Tope Otona. He's the CEO and founder of Calendly. He's going to be nice. talking about bootstrapping, which he did very, very successfully up until recently. We also have Alexa Von Tobel talking about finance for founders, not just how to run your company's finances, but how to manage your own personal finances while you're starting a business, which I think is super, super important. Uh, we also have Keys to Nailing Product Market Fit with Rahul Vora. Uh, from Superhuman. It should be just an outstanding lineup, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. And uh, in even better news, we have a couple of uh, sweeteners that we have in the mix. So Jordan, tell people in the equity audience uh, what we have for them. Yeah, so if you buy a ticket to early stage, you automatically get access to Extra Crunch. So it's kind of a double whammy when it comes to things startup founders need to know. And we're offering our equity audience a 20% discount. So if you use code equity at checkout when you're buying your early stage ticket, you're going to get the most bang for your buck. All right. Well, it's coming up in just a couple of weeks, so we'll see you all there. TechCrunch Early Stage coming in April. It's going to be amazing. All right. Bye.